When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. The 5th of October 2022 marks 60 years since Doctor No first premiered. So to celebrate 60 years of Bond, we'll be talking about the greatest Bond movie moments over three very special episodes, featuring more cameos than Casino Royale 1967. My name is Tom Butler and joining me for the second part of our Bond movie moment series, he's the jaws to my dolly, it's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Am I wearing braces? No, are you wearing braces? <laughs> I am. And if Brendan is my jaws, then he's our Baron Samady. It's Mr. Tom Wheatley returning to the podcast. Oh, I'll take that. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> so across these three episodes, you'll hear from our lovely listeners, other podcasts, friends of the show and guests old and new who've all chosen their own favourite moments from the Bond films of Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton. So before we get on to our guests... Uh, what are the moments that you two would like to highlight from the Moore and Dalton eras that haven't been uh, referenced by our guests? Brendan, you go first. Um, I'm surprised no one's mentioned the live and let die boat chase mm-hmm. because it spans a vast amount of river. I mean, it goes on for a while, as we touched on in the episode. Um, but again, I'm, I'm picking one that it's like a mini Bond movie on its own. Um but the chase, it's just its just relentless. And, and Bond has to defeat so many people in that chase. And also ruin a wedding. Yeah. Um, it, uh, he, he outwits the, the police as well. Um, and annoys the police, which is good to see. But which police in particular, Brendan? Come on, say his name. <laughs> Sheriff. <laughs> Sheriff J.W. J. Pepper. That's, who you, that's, that's the subtext of your moment, isn't it? Yes. That it's J.W. Yeah. Pepper. Basically, yeah. yeah. And I'm surprised no one's mentioned him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an action centrepiece um, for mm. the movie, isn't it? Uh, and 
brilliantly staged on location. Roger Moore, let's not forget, got injured on this one as well, putting himself on the line. Probably why he spent a lot of later movies relying on stuntmen. But um, yeah, I mean, that uh, that that boat chase in, in um, Live and Let Die is, is superb. What about you, Wheatley? Um, so... I'll briefly touch on the one that I do think is the the top one, but I know somebody else is going to talk about this. But the the opening sequence to the Spy Love Me, I just think is it's like the most perfect little opening sequence that probably exists in any Bond film. Some of the Bond films that you get have really long sequences. There's like three locations. I don't think that's how a Bond opening sequence should be. I think this is the the, the like the perfect one. It's just one scene. It's, some great skiing some slightly stupider skiing and then you've got the the parachute opening with the uni uni jack and i think you look at if you ask anyone of a certain age you say give me a bond moment they'll probably go oh the union jack opening with the with the parachute um i think alan partridge talks about that quite a bit as well doesn't it sort of uh stamped its place on on the zeitgeist um but i won't go into too much depth that the actual one because somebody else is going to mention that i'll talk about the one that i picked now, this isn't my favourite scene of Roger Moore's, but I think it is very iconic in the same way that that Union Jack um, parachute is. And that's the live and let die crocodile scene where he runs across the crocodiles. Um, I It just sort of sums up Roger Moore so easily, so simply, because it's a, it, it, if Daniel Craig was doing that, it would be perilous situation where it'd be quite scary it's just not with Roger. It's just <laughs> ridiculous. But the fact that it was real, that they really did that that scene, just makes it go, go show that Roger had this amazing ability to make something that was actually quite dangerous and scary just seem nonsense. Um, but I, I love it. I mean, if I, I, I imagine at the time um, when people were watching it, that was mind-blowing effect and a mind-blowing thing to do. Now it just seems like a silly carry-on sketch, but... Um, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic sequence, and um, I think yeah, it just sums up Roger more perfectly. But the fact that they did it for real elevates it, doesn't it? Because yeah. if it, if you could see that they were just like foam crocodiles or whatever, you just go, mm, well, but nobody would believe it now. If, no. if if you showed that to somebody and said, uh, watch this, they'd go, that's good, it's funny, that's yeah. real, that's a real action <laughs> sequence that they they spent ages filming with real crocodiles. Um, I think that's part of the beauty of it. Absolutely. Um, for Roger, for me, I mean, uh, the, I totally agree. Spy Who Loved Me, I think, is one of the pinnacle. In fact, if not the pinnacle of the Bond series in terms of moments that um, sort of come to define the character. It's um, action spectacle. It's humour. And it ends with an k- absolutely killer stunt. That and fantastic be... uh, role by Billington. Don't, yeah, don't, Michael don't Billington. Billington out. <laughs> That's a good callback. Um and yeah, it's just absolutely superb and also has ramifications later in the film, right? It's not just one of those standalone pre-title sequences that doesn't have an impact later on. It's all tied in with the plot um, with um, uh, Agent Triple X. Um, and so for that reason, I think it's it's one of the best. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm here to talk about another iconic Spy Who Loved Me moment, which is the Lotus Esprit, um, which, it, you know... Roger never got to drive the Aston Martin, but he did get the second most iconic Bond car, which for me is the White Lotus Esprit, which turns into a submarine. That action sequence for me, um, it 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 tops, it exceeds what they managed with uh, Goldfinger. It came to define the 70s Bond. It's a cool looking car. It does absolutely ridiculous things. It's completely implausible. But the way that they achieve it with all the special effects... Um, the model cars, 
the actual submarines that they used, all that sort of stuff is brilliant. And then there's the final moment when the boat comes to shore, the guy double takes and Roger then drops a fish out the window. Um, it's so silly, but it works. Yeah, you've pretty much summed up Roger there, haven't you? Cool and implausible. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so from cool and plausible, uh, sorry, from cool and implausible to to very cool and plausible. Let's talk about Dalton. Brendan? Well, I think the scene in Licence to Kill where he essentially, where he confronts M and he's got that simmering rage and he basically uh, leaves, you know, goes rogue. I think that scene is is fantastic and um, it's not something we, well, I mean, again, more recently we've seen it. We've seen him confront M all the time, but, you know, up to the, before this point, we'd seen him pretty much toe the line. Um, so to see this and see him then run off uh, and, you know, and then they don't know where he is for the rest of the film is is fantastic. I love that as well, though, that he has this confrontation with M, um, but they M sort of lets him go as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's M's basically got to do his job, but also understands why Bond's doing what he's doing. It's yeah. It's a difficult decision from him, isn't it? Yeah, and the farewell to arms line because it's at Hemingway's house is uh, is a is a lovely um, sort yeah. of chef's kiss moment. Um, Wheatley. So I'm going for, and for some reason I've just realised that I'm only picking scenes that have got snow in them. Uh, that's not <laughs> that's not intentional. I only only like Bond when he's in the snow. Uh, I'm going for uh, Living Daylights when he's uh, the sort of snow chase scene that starts with the Vantage uh, Eight. V8 and then ends up on the cello. Um, I think the reason I like, well, I don't, I don't think this is an amazing scene, but I think it is iconic for Dalton because Dalton gets quite a few action scenes, but they tend to be quite gritty action sequences. There's not a lot of fun in them. I think this is, there's this fun in it in this one. I think you could see any of the Bonds doing this and even Roger. Um, starts off pretty hard, pretty gritty. The, the Vantage is, uh, is it the Vantage? Vantage yeah. Eight, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, mm. pretty cool sequence. Cello just gets ridiculous, and to the point where they—I think he shows his passport, doesn't he? When he goes across the board, yeah, the shout, on the cello, nothing to declare, which yeah. is which is a Roger moment. That's, that's <laughs> yes, that, you, yeah, it's it's definitely not for, for Dalton. Um, I just think it's a very nice, interesting sequence. You look at some of the other Dalton sequences, like the the one at the end of Living Daylights in the plane. It goes on for ages. There's not a lot of humour in it. it. It sort of drags a bit. Whereas this one is a lot happening. It's a very fun sequence to watch and it almost elevates Dalton for me into something that he didn't get the opportunity to do in a lot of the other, well, all the other sequences in the films. Yeah, one action sequence that one of our guests does mention is the one, uh, the water skiing moment in Licence to Kill, which I think does sort of almost reach the heights of the cello scene. But um, uh, it's a great moment, isn't it? And the, that whole idea of the cello is a theme that runs throughout the movie. So it sort of typifies the living daylights, doesn't it? Yeah. For me, I've chosen the finale of uh, License to Kill with the uh, lorry chase because it's just one of the greatest action sequences for me committed um, to film for the Bond series. Um, it is feels visceral. If they were to do it now, there'd be a lot of CGI and digital replacement, but it was all done in camera for real. They really tipped up a lorry to go on its side. I mean, it doesn't make sense at all, but it but it works in the in the scheme of it. You can almost feel the heat of the explosions. You can smell the gasoline. 
Um, and and Dalton is just completely unflappable in his sort of pursuit of revenge in this moment. And I think that just really typifies his era of Bond. Uh, it's gritty. It's real. Um, but um, yeah, all all you know, Dalton is a is a true thespian, but he gives it his all. He really doesn't look down mm. on the material. He really embraces the material, and that's why uh, that's why I love that moment. Um, so. On this episode, you will hear from uh, Val Pacecho, Mark Harrison, Neil Alcock, Mark Edlitz, Steve O'Brien, John Orty, Mark Miller, the guys from Clash of the Title. And first of all, let's hear from our listener, Lane Bruce. Hi, fellas. My name is Lane, and I'm an avid listener uh, from the U.S. I haven't missed an episode of the show since I started binge listening about a year ago. Uh, I pride myself on being an expert about the Bond film series, uh, having been a fan for over 40 years, but I always learn new things each episode, so thank you for the effort uh, that you put into this. I really love the podcast. My choice for one of the most underrated moments uh, in the series comes from The Man with the Golden Gun, which is a movie I generally feel is underrated overall, uh, and I truly feel as though it has one of the series' best villains. Uh, and the precise moment I chose is lunch uh, with Bond, Scaramanga, and Goodnight at the Funhouse Island Mansion. Uh, Scaramanga's monologue about growing up in the circus is a... Uh, sad and chilling moment uh, that offers a depth of character and motivation rarely seen among the other flashier and more maniacal villains in the series. And Christopher Lee's performance is just terrific here and through the entire movie, uh, truly. And the danger implied in the scene is underscored by how serious that Roger Moore actually plays it. So these are two colorful but ultimately cold assassins at their best. When I kill, it's on the specific orders of my government. And those I kill are themselves killers. Oh, come, come, Mr. Bond. You disappoint me. You get as much fulfillment out of killing as I do, so why don't you admit it? I admit killing you would be a pleasure. You should have done that when you first saw me. But then, of course, the English don't consider it sporting to kill in cold blood, do they? Don't count on that. Hey, Tom, Tom and Brendan, thank you for inviting Alex and myself from Clash of the Titles to talk about our favourite Bond movie moment, although we've just got in the studio and no, realised... this is your fault. You didn't explain it clearly enough. I thought it was Bond movie. Alex has done his best movie and he's written notes, so if it's OK, he's going to do that. Yeah, but I'll pick a moment from the movie so it'll still work within the confines of the question, but apologies, I'm sorry. OK, Alex, what's your favourite Bond movie moment? <laughs> Well, my favourite Bond movie is uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, I think it is truly the greatest Bond movie ever. I absolutely adore that film. It's such a fun movie. I mean, sure, Stromberg isn't the greatest villain in the world, but because they couldn't get the Spectre rights, I believe, and it was meant to be Blofeld. He's a good surrogate Blofeld. Uh, it's the only Bond movie that has actually made me scared in real life. The idea of a lift floor disappearing and you sliding down into a water tank with a shark in it meant that for a good portion of my childhood, I wedged myself in the corners of lifts so that I had no weight on the floor in case the floor gave way and put me in a shark tank. So that's your favourite moment? 
No, my favourite moment's the opening, obviously. I think it's genius. I think the bit where the parachute opens, first of all, that freefall jump is epic. And then the minute that parachute, I mean, Bond made a parachute iconic. When it opens into the Union Jack, dun dun, and the score kicks in, bosh. There you go. That is actually my favourite moment. Chris. So I think, and forgive me if I'm wrong here, Tom, I think when we worked together, we might have done a list of the best Bond movie moments, uh, a huge thing that we did, and we put all the clips online, and then we were told, eh, copyright, you can't do that. Had to pull them all down. But I'm pretty sure we worked on this together. If we didn't, apologies. But in my memory, uh, the number one moment that we picked is the number one moment I'm picking now. And that is... Go on. The beginning of The Spy Who Loved Me. No! Yeah! <laughs> what are the chances? Wow! Uh, so, it kicks off with Bond getting on in a cabin with a woman. He receives a fax to his digital watch. Um, he dons an inconspicuous yellow ski suit with red backpack. <laughs> um, he gets chased down the mountain. He fires bullets from the ski poles while flipping over the baddies. Uh, we've got close-ups of Roger Moore, very clearly not on the mountains. <laughs> and as you say, he skis towards the edge of that cliff. He skis off the edge of the cliff. He falls for what seems like forever in silence. Then the parachute opens. It's a union frigging jack. And as you said, the music kicks in. It's less 007 and more 00 heaven. Lovely. So actually, you ended up with the same pick from both of us. <laughs> we didn't even plan that. Wow. Incredible. Awesome. Thanks anyway. for having us on, guys. Yeah, good luck with the rest of the show. Cheers. Bye. That's not the end of the beginning. The end of the beginning goes like this. Clang. Glang a lang a lang a lang a lang a lang. Glang a lang, lang a lang a lang. Nobody does it better. And I'm a naked woman in silhouette with a gun, spinning round. Welcome back to the podcast, the creator of Kickass, Kingsman, Wanted, Jupiter's Legacy, Super Crooks, head of Miller World, and also the creator of the recent comic, King of Spies, is Mr. Mark Miller. Hi there, how's it going? Very well, Mark. Thank you so much for coming back to talk about 60 years of James Bond. Um, I feel like we're putting you on the spot a little bit <laughs> on asking you to name a moment, um, your favourite movie moment. But are you ready? I'm ready. I'm good to what, go. What, what have you gone for? Well, it's funny. My mind is flooded with so many cool moments because the mm -hmm. thing about Bond, probably more than any sort of pre-Marvel franchise, is so much of it is based around cool moments, isn't it? Like every film's got 10 cool moments and then you multiply that by over 20 films. And it's actually almost impossible. But I narrow it down from even great ones like Goldfinger, Moonraker, all this kind of thing. I narrow it down to The Spy Who Loved Me. And I narrow it down, Spy Who Loved Me, to The Train Fight. And I, the thing is, the train fight between Roger Moore and Richard Keel, James Bond and Jaws, I'd never seen anything like it. I was seven, and I, I think I saw it before I saw Star Wars. I think I saw it before Star Wars. So I hadn't really seen a blockbuster before. This was my first time seeing a big blockbuster in the cinema. So this was a battle royale, you know, this fight. I'd never seen the From Russia We Love train fight. And I know it was a bit of a nod to that. But for me, this is the original Bond train fight, you know. And I was so obsessed with it that I acted it out for weeks, weeks after I'd seen the movie. And I would get friends and family and everything to be Jaws. And I obviously was James Bond dressed up in a sort of school uniform come, you know, Bond style outfit and everything. And I'd just act out every day. And the big thing I did, we had a, a low window at our dining room that I was able to kick someone out of and they landed on what was usually <laughs> great. I, <laughs> I'd elaborately set the whole thing up and everything and I'd boot, boot whoever it was, one of my friends in the face and they would go back out the window at the end of our big simulation, you know? So for, I think for me, that's that's the moment. That's the one. 
That's great. I mean, when you said train fight, yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to distinguish which one you were going to go for, really, because mm-hmm. it is really is a cornerstone of the, of the franchise, isn't it? Going back to, um, like, say, from Russia with love. But also, let's not forget, Roger had his other train fight as well. He'd already done one in Live and Let Die. That's true. That's true, which I just watched recently on the big screen again. Um, and- you know, the, the Bond retrospective that's been going on for the 60th anniversary. And you know what? My friend Nick Sedgefield, who I go with every week, the two of us go and see Bond every single Tuesday night. And the thing we realized is even the ones that aren't as beloved as others are still 10 out of 10 on the big screen. Whenever you watch Bond on the big screen, like Live and Let Die and Man with a Golden Gun aren't as beloved as Moonraker and uh, Spy You Love Me. But my God, they're great when you see them on the big screen. And that fight is also awesome. I mean, they are big screen animals, aren't they? And I do think that sometimes is forgotten, especially when you watch some of the more muted ones at home. Um, Brendan and I have had very similar experiences recently. Mm. Um, w- which was the one that really struck out to you, Brendan, on the you, big screen? You Only Live Twice is the one that, f- for me, it's just yeah. that final third act, oh. the volcano. Yeah. Uh, it, just, it just offers something that you, you don't get if you're watching it on like 40-inch TV. And, and your senses tell you this exists. You know, they did make that big interior, that big Ken Adams set. Mm. You know it's not CGI, it's not green screen for two-thirds of that or anything. This this is a real thing you're looking at. And there's just some... When, when you see the curtains going back at the beginning of a Bond film and then you see the screen going mm. back and back and back and you think, oh, we're in for something expensive here. You know, this, this looked really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting that you chose this moment, Mark, from The Spy Who Loved Me because that is a film, for me, that is packed with iconic moments. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, is there some? Is it was it the fact that it was something that you could relate to, not relate to necessarily, but something that you could act out, something you could recreate at home that perhaps really struck a chord? Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, I was seven when I saw it. You know, so the so getting off with somebody scenes, no chance, right? That was never going to happen, right? When I'm playing it at home, you know. Um, but also going off the cliff with a parachute—that's never happening either, you know. So, so uh, yeah, I had to be realistic in my uh, my ambitions. So and even the car chases, blowing up the helicopter, all that kind of thing, you know. Uh, the other thing I did like, though, is when Stromberg is at the end of that preposterously long dinner table and, you know, you've got the gunshot all the way along that steel tube. And I never really quite got the logic of that steel tube. Even as a kid, I remember sort of thinking, that doesn't really physically make much sense. You know, like, it's easier just to, to shoot him. And under the table, like that, that tube isn't carrying the bullet along specifically, <laughs> It's so ridiculous, but it's so brilliant, you know, but so as a kid, you know, that was a kind of fun one to sort of try out at the dinner table and everything as well. I mean, bringing it back to the train fight, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a one-on-one um, between uh, Roger Moore's Bond and, and Richard Keel's Jaws. Yeah. Um, and Richard Keel uh, is such a memorable henchman, um for a lot of people, I mean, when you see books about the villains of Bond, you know, he's always yeah. the guy on the front, isn't he? What, what do you think made him such a special um, hench person? There was a lot of things. I mean, James Bond villains have got to have something that makes them physically very different. Don't they? The henchmen, certainly, you know, they have to be physically different. And he was such a physically unusual looking guy, very unique, you know, uh, with that big heavy brow. But the teeth, obviously, was was such an iconic thing, like, it's merging Jaws and Dracula, isn't it? Like to, to have terrifying teeth. He kills you with his mouth, which you'd never seen before. Killing you with a bowler hat is cool. Killing you with their mouth is actually quite frightening. And you kind of forget because they play him a little bit more for laughs later. But in that film, he really is quite scary. Like that introduction scene where you see him in Egypt, mm-hmm. where you have that big booming voiceover talking about the pyramids. 
and then the light flashes on and off and he disappears with the light and everything you know just he's a very eerie character and biting through chains and when i was seven he was he was frightening enough to be genuinely scary like i i really i was i was frightened of him you know he was a great baddie but at the same time um he also piggybacked on the back of jaws itself so it was such an iconic name like bond is kind of like the carry-ons that two years after something is popular bond will assimilate it you know, so after James Bond itself appears, you've got Carry On Spying. After the Sword and Sandals epics, you get Carry On Cleo and everything, you know, so Carry On Cowboy after the man with no name. And it's the same thing with Bond, isn't it? So Moonraker obviously came from Star Wars' success. Mm. And Jaws, I mean, they just went right out there. They were like, right, let's just call a guy Jaws. <laughs> you know? And I love, I love the utter shamelessness of Bond like that. It's fantastic. And Octopussy as well follows on from the sort of Eastern mysticism of, of Indiana Jones as well. Like you can sort yeah. of definitely trace a line between uh, between those. Oh, well, um, it's funny you say that because I mean I watched Octopussy recently, and um, you know I'd never seen Octopussy, and, and I'm a Bond fanatic, you know. But for some reason, I thought I'd seen Octopussy, and I hadn't. And it was my daughter's boyfriend put me on to to Octopussy, and I was like, my God, this is amazing. It's, I actually put it in the upper echelons of the Bonds. It's amazing. And how amazing to find a Bond you've never seen before, like a classic Bond you've never seen. It's like finding Indiana Jones 6 or Superman 8 or something, you know? <laughs> it's like, it was actually wonderful to, to, to find it, you know? But I'll tell you something really interesting that I noticed is that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom obviously shares a lot of things with Octopus, you know, with the Indian street fights and things like this, you know? Um, but Bond came first. Which is quite unusual because normally Bond follows the trends, but it actually did it a full year, maybe even slightly more than Temple of Doom. And what's amazing when I watched Spy Who Loved Me again recently in cinemas, they have the scene from Temple of Doom and Spy Who Loved Me with Barbara Bach, you know, where Bond goes in one carriage, you know, one room in the train, and she's in the other just sort of like getting ready for him to burst in and kiss her. And she's so confident that he's going to be into her. And then the baddie appears, you know. And the exact same beats are used in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom with Kate Capshaw and Harrison Ford. And again, when they're just about to kiss, that's when danger strikes, you know. So it's interesting, you know. I mean, Spielberg was obviously watching these these films very carefully. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's well documented that he got... The idea was that he wanted to do a, a Bond film. And when he spoke to George Lucas about it, Lucas said, you know, I've got another idea that you could do. Yeah, that, that is like that, and that's how that sort of idea came to fruition. But the, it's interesting to trace those links um, mm. between the two. Yeah. Um, Brendan, do you want to ask the question about the the longevity? Yeah. What What do you think is the key to the longevity and the endurance of of Bond at the movies? I think Bond's longevity is the simplest thing in the world. Now I say this to everyone. I think there's two types of characters in films. You know, lead characters in terms of heroes. There's proactive heroes and reactive heroes, and proactive heroes last forever. So, for example, James Bond is a proactive hero. His job is to go out and find trouble, you know, to sort out a problem that exists. So it doesn't seem weird when he's on, you know, adventure number 18 or adventure 35 or whatever, because that's his job. You're like, MI6, send him out to solve these problems. Whereas John McClane is a reactive hero. John McClane was a good guy in the wrong place at the wrong time, so he had to save these people. But the idea that four or five movies in, he's in another terrorist situation, it starts to look weird, you know? So so I, I think that's it. Longevity comes from somebody seeking out problems they're going to solve. Doctor Who, James Bond, Batman. Batman goes out every night looking for trouble. 
And what do you think is the key to the series surviving another 60 years? I mean, that's a big question, but... um... (laughs) Well, Bond's interesting in that it does follow trends. You know, it does... uh, Even even Goldfinger has got nods to North by Northwest and everything. You know, it's a very similar structure. And, like, uh, you know, so Bond very cleverly looks around at what's, what's currently in vogue, assimilates it, destroys the other thing, and then moves on and and stays big, you know, and, and it's like Bond himself, isn't it? You drop Bond into the middle of the jungle and he will survive, he'll assimilate and survive, you know, and I think the, the franchise does the same. It's unbeatable because it will use everything to its advantage. So whatever is currently fashionable, Bond will do. And and then when it's no longer fashionable, he'll jettison it and find something else. And uh, and long may it continue, you know. It's, uh, I mean, I'm keen to see the next wave because... I got really quite bored in the last wave. It just seemed went on too long. It was only four movies over fifteen years. Now, you know, one, two of them were good, you know, but like, uh, you know, I'm I'm ready for a for a whole new wave of James Bond, and I hope it has an entirely different feel. I do worry when I see things in the newspapers where they say, yeah, he's going to be a gentler Bond and he's going to be more empathic and everything. I was like, no, no, we need a funny Bond who's ruthless. You know, that's that's the Bond I want um, coming up next. That it can land a joke. I think. I think that the last Bond is quite often very different from the previous Bond. You know, mm. so Roger Moore was very different from Connery. Then you had the seriousness of Dalton. Then you had the light touch of Brosnan. Then the seriousness again of of Daniel Craig. Um, so I think this is the time to go light again. You know, somebody like Henry Cavill is exciting to me because he has a sense of fun. You know, he, he's he's got a Roger Moore vibe to him, and I, I could see him. I could see him being great, and it would it would just feel fresh. It would feel new. Somebody like him in there, I think. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. But everyone's eagerly anticipating what happens next. But um, yeah. uh, at, at this stage, you know, we've got the the sixty years of, of movies to look back on uh, and enjoy. And and this is like Christmas Eve, right? We're all sitting there waiting to unwrap the present when the next one comes and see what happens. It's a it's an exciting time. I quite um, like. I've got a lot of Bond friends, and I quite like pretending to them that the news has been announced and i always i always pick somebody terrible you know and these same these same friends are also into doctor who so i'll call them up and say oh my god i can't believe russell brand is the new doctor who and they're like oh no you know i, I love doing this with james bond as well you know just finding <laughs> the worst possible people <laughs> Hello and welcome to the James Bond Aid Said podcast. John Orty from Behind the Stunts. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm fine. Yes, I'm very well. Uh, you've you've caught me on a good day, so all things are fine so far. So let's dive into it. What moment have you chosen as the greatest James Bond movie moment of the last sixty years, and why? Uh, well, it's almost an impossible question. Uh, so I, I've uh, how I've managed to come up with one. I don't know. There are a number of major moments. However, this one for me um, has kind of been significant it's the it's the pre-title sequence in moonraker and i've chosen it because not only is it incredibly exciting to watch but it's filmed in a brand new way and bearing in mind when this was done this was filmed in in the summer of 78 so you're you're looking at um a, a revolutionary way to film aerial action sequences that hadn't been done before they played about with you know, there were a number of movies and television series of the time, mostly movies, that had had aerial escapades in some shape or form with somebody falling out of an aeroplane and, and parachutists and stuff of that nature. But this is, you know, right there in your face. You are going with them. 
and uh, you are seeing both of the individuals. You're, you're seeing Bond and you're seeing the pilot and they are grappling. And then you then realise that this isn't being filmed in a studio. It's not, you know, a, a really shoddy backdrop at Burbank somewhere. It is actual location and therefore there is a third person in the air which is the cameraman and the pictures so you know it's very clear it's an extraordinary image that they're capturing and you look at that sequence and you think wow you know they, they've done it all in one go and of course they they did it over a number of weeks taking three second shots is what they did uh, so it, you, you put all of that into some sort of perspective and then you look at what's followed and the thing that, that that's followed is that you know, whatever movie you've ever seen that's had anything since 1979 that's been a parachute sequence, a fight in the midair, something of that nature, will have started from that point right there. B.J. Worth and Jake Lombard are still to this day credited as being the engineers behind what we now know as aerial action cinematography. Um, and they created that, you know, with, with the aid of, of, uh, of some extraordinary pieces of equipment and, uh, and the biggest cojones you've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about about this this sequence. I think what I also love about this uh, specific sequence is the build up to it because um, it's got a great in, uh, opening for the Bond film. And actually, the fist fight on the plane is really impressive as well. It's one of those classic, you know, close quarters battles between Bond and the, and the pilot. Um, but then when you see him on the edge of the plane and you just think, well, they're not going to go out without parachutes. And, and then not. that's what they do. Yeah, and it's just it is an astonishing, astonishing moment in the movie. You've you've said that they they had to sort of pioneer new techniques. What sort of things are we talking about here for this for this well, sequence? There had never been uh, a concealed wardrobe. There'd never been a concealed parachute before. And from the fact of concealing it, meaning that it's underneath the clothing, you cannot see it. You see it once or twice uh, in in a couple of shots. Uh, Jake is manoeuvring himself into a certain position and you can see around his waistband at the back there are buckles underneath his costume which is obviously attaching the main parachute to the harness in which he's wearing underneath. The clothing then of course has to be designed in such a way that when the ripcord is pulled the, the, the back of the, of the jacket simply falls apart. It comes down the middle. There's a ripcord system in the middle, uh, which I think originally was light stitching and now would be a Velcro or something of that nature, which simply ex allows the back of the wardrobe, the back of the the, um, the uh, uh, parachute to open up and then the jacket opens with it and it's not, there's nothing preventing it from opening fully as it would normally in that split second. Because when you pull that chute, you want everything to just go boom and then happen. You don't want that additional weight of thinking, is my jacket opening properly? Am I going to, you know, have I got enough room between now and the ground to get this chute fully deployed? So all of these things are taken into consideration. Of course, that's a moment that we, that's something we don't see in the movie either, is it? That's, that's the thing that preserves the movie magic within yes. the scene, right? Because yeah. it's the hidden one beneath the clothes that, that that's we're it. talking about, isn't it? Which is, uh, uh, yeah, again, it's quite astonishing. How many, how many? I was, I was merely saying, you're, you're in referring there, of course, to, to the moment that they are, they're fighting over a parachute. What they're fighting over is an empty parachute. They're fighting over a rucksack. There's nothing in it. Yeah. 
you know, of course, the two guys, the two, yeah. the, the, they are wearing concealed ones. And of course, for the opening of the parachute, it is BJ Worth literally wearing an actual parachute over his uh, his body in his actual suit. Then they've then changed. This is the final part of the of the sequence. So they've done all of the the concealed parachute stuff, and they make sure that's okay. And then they go for the opening of the parachute, of course, where he is now in his usual was well, slightly different because obviously he's had to wear a number of layers underneath because uh, it still would even though it's california uh, in uh, in the summer it still would have been a bit parky when you're jumping from uh, 10 or fifteen thousand feet so and i'm sure, sure business suits or whatever they're i mean the casual suits isn't the ideal thing to be skydiving in either <laughs> no, exactly. You, must have made it very difficult to you do see a lot of those um uh parachute footage these days you know there it's it's a bit like um it's a bit like running clothes it's a bit like uh, uh you know trainers that are not just necessarily made for work, walking around in they're made for for running in they're designed specifically and these types of clothing are exactly the same they they serve their purpose by being able to be movable you need to have enough movement in them so that you you know that there's not no chance of fraying or splitting or anything of that nature but more importantly it needs to be able to keep you at a certain temperature because obviously the higher you go, the colder it will get, regardless of how closer you are getting to the sun. The overall uh, heat, body heat and body temperature and adrenaline does a great deal of that for you as well. If you are absolutely on the maximum of adrenaline, which is likely if you're going to be doing extreme sports or something of that nature, and you are pumped up as much as you can be, which is always a good thing, you know, when, when uh, um, I think BJ was, was interviewed once and said, are you nervous? You get, you're dead right, I'm nervous, you know, but I have to be nervous, <laughs> even though, you know, he's a world, both of them, world champion skydivers, captains of the world, of the, uh, the Olympic team. But more importantly, if they are nervous, there's a little something inside your head that says, nerves are good. If I don't have nerves, something could go horribly wrong. So they have to have that whole thing. And wearing the right clothing and having the right attire and being able to do that is, a, is another factor of being able to just keep everything on the level so that you know that that part's taken care of. You then have to worry about the actual physicality of the whole thing. Of course, nowadays we would have much smaller, more nimble cameras than we would have done those days. So it must have taken some special equipment to capture the footage as well. Yeah, the um, they had... Uh, the um, uh, the camera guy, of course, would, would was wearing a a helmet. It's a helmet cam, um, as, right. uh, and, and obviously, you know, it's 1978. So it wasn't the smallest of helmet cams. It was pretty large by all accounts. That's additional weight. Uh, you know, you're looking six to eight pounds of additional weight, which means that you have to hold your body in a different way. The, um, you see um, Formula One racing drivers going through lots of preliminary testing and exercise to uh, tighten their neck muscles. Uh, and this is because of the G-forces that they feel in corners when they're traveling at 140, 150 miles an hour. In connection with that, this camera, a big piece of kit on top of an already large helmet, means that you can't just move your head up and down you have to try and be able to position it and hold it in a certain way which means the rest of your body needs to be in a in a particular position to it to adapt it now over time if that parachute is opened relatively quickly which of course it needs to be uh the whiplash effect 
on that chute opening and your head coming to the upright position could be fatal. And to the point oh, where, God. because of the additional weight on top of your head, you could break your neck. So what they then had to develop was a way in which that chute could be opened, but slower, not slowly, but slower than it would normally, allowing the body to get into a position where you're then ready to brace and then it opens. So what they did it, it, nowadays, you know, you, you, it seems awfully Heath Robinson in respect, but string tied around the, the, the cords of the um, of the, the chute itself, which will then they're not tied. They're just held together so that they open slightly slower than they would normally. That's enough right. for then the positioning to change. And of course, over time, the size of the cameras get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where they lipstick cams and God knows what else. And now, of course, you know, those uh, those cams that everybody's using for this type of thing. But um, you also don't get many big parachuting jobs in movies anymore. They, you know, they, they no. kind of, this was, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if filmmakers around the world have looked at a script and it says, oh, scene 237, big parachute fight. That's been done been done it's, it's, we'll make it a car chase instead we'll do something else because it's been done and because moonraker was so significant in that um the only people that really had another good chuck norris had a go at it if you remember i think it was missing um, missing an action 57 or one of those the second one i think it was missing <laughs> action two and there was a big parachuting sequence point break was another one where they had a big parachuting sequence and there's a there's a wesley snipes picture which i can't think what it was off the top of my head but that, and apart from that, you might have had the odd scene here and there, but nowhere near anything like this because people don't want to touch it with a barge pole. It's very, very, you know, it's iconic and it's that sort of thing that you look at on the top of a mountain and go, if we could do something like that, we're never going to get that. But if we could do something that's a bit like that, then we'll be happy and the editor will be happy and the audience will be happy because they've had a big roller coaster ride. So that type of thing. But you don't get them very often these days. And when you do, you know, um, Mr. Cruz is a good example. He's doing it uh, in a Mission Impossible movie, um, and all you can see is this. <laughs> you know, go, what? Why are you doing this? Let's see the whole thing. And, that. and then f film, it in the, film it in the day, and then pretend it's night. Why? Don't do that. Oh, yeah. Anyway, but that's the, that's the way we are at the, at, the, at the moment with this type of thing. And how many jumps would it have taken to... to, to to film this sequence for, for Moonraker, uh, do, we, do we know? 150, 160, probably, um, over the space of... Um, Incredible. Over the space of a, of a three to six-week period. Um, and, of course, leading up to that would have been the development of all of the equipment. And Michael Wilson is on credit uh, uh, as being, you know, the guy who is, who is pretty much solely responsible for the cinematography side of it. He managed to find, in a second-hand store, a junk store in Paris... Um, a, a Paniflex camera, you know, which was that, the lens. I go, oh, that happened. that's much lighter. Because before you'd have something that was very, very heavy indeed. Whereas this was the, this was the game changer. It's a loud widescreen. And so, uh, oh, okay, this is interesting. So on the strength of that, um, my, my, Mike Wilson's not only Mike Wilson. Look at me, like I, like I know the guy. Mike Wilson, Mr. Wilson. <laughs> Um, is not only a, the producer, but he's also a very clever guy. He's a um, um, very good with his physics and his mental arithmetic, and, and, and this has proved uh, vital on a number of occasions, particularly, again, with B.J. Worth, uh, the um, um, 
jumping off the Eiffel Tower, for instance, he said to him, "The view to a kill jump. Yeah. How long do I need to?" Uh, he said, "Well, you worked out the feet per second per second and said you got three and a half seconds. That'll be fine. Don't worry. <laughs> count three and a half seconds. The altimeter and normally the the, the the air sound, the tone changes in your ears, and you go ah bang, pull the no no, you just three and count three and a half, boom, pull the cord. And he's dead right, you know. So he does all of this. He's a very clever fella." So looking into the background of it and, and thinking, we've got this idea for a sequence, because originally the Moonraker pre-title was the Acrostar jet, of course, which was then used in, in Octopussy. So they've made changes along the way and developed something and come up with it. And Michael had said, well, let's let's hunt them down. And he found BJ and Jake. You know. And so he uh, he must be congratulated for that, certainly. And it's, uh, it is. It's a r- ridiculously complicated and, and, and unbelievably exciting sequence. It really is. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it paved the way for more parachute skydiving scenes in, in, in future Bond films as well. Mm-hmm. But I think um, I don't think it's ever been embedded in, in this one, has it? Um, I think it's a, it's a great choice, John. I think it's not only does it show the technical uh, wizardry behind these films, but also works dramatically, right, as well. It's it's all very well and good do, getting capturing this stuff. But if it doesn't work together as a piece of yeah. film, then... It's for nothing, and it really, it really does work. Sets the scene for this movie. It's as dramatic uh, on the screen as it is off the screen, because those moments yeah. that we talk about, even though possibly the, the the less complicated section of that was the, the the fight on board the plane prior to leave, which of course was all studio based, uh, which was Martin yeah. Grace um, doubling Roger for the fight, um, and then of course. The last time that we saw him fight on the plane, I guess, would have been Goldfinger, really, in that respect, to, you know, uh, seeing a fuselage and then seeing a fight taking place. And, of course, the, the plane that they were using in, in uh, Goldfinger, much bigger, lots more headroom between the top of your, the, the roof and, and your head. Here, not as much. It's a, it's a, it's a, a Learjet. It's a smaller, sleeker outfit. So the set is designed in such a way that um, it allows for reality. And then... The continuity between the two sequences is is extraordinary, and then of course we we forget in certain cases you know it's, it's a laughable sequence, but there was a lot of people laughing last night when I saw it. But um, Jaws, of course, you know, is in the air as well, and skydivers aren't tall. You know, they're not tall. They're not right. they're not over six feet tall as a rule, and so uh, BJ had to find a guy who was A, a very good skydiver, and B, would look bigger on screen than the rest of them. And luckily, he managed to find a guy called Ronnie Luganbill, who is six foot five, which is just lunacy. He's a very, very tall guy. (laughs) Now, of course, in anywhere, if he's in a building, if he's in a car, if he's, you know, standing next to somebody, he's six foot five. But when he's... 20,000 feet in the air, he's just another guy. There's no there's no sense of size about him whatsoever. So in order to create the size of Jaws, the character at seven foot two, as Richard Keel played him, he has to, you know, be a certain he creates this character by 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 putting his wrists over at the end and 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 the shirt was very white. You know, it was a very sunny day, it was very white against this blue background, and he stands out. And, of course, has to have this terrible silver foil in his mouth. I mean, it's the most terrible <laughs> thing. Of course, they don't have the teeth. 
that I mean, even Richard Keel was struggling with the teeth. You know, would make push his tongue back and make him gag every two minutes. But to have something yeah, yeah. around, I think it was a um, um, a football player's gum shield or a boxer's gum shield. They put and they wrapped this sort of silvery foil around it and put it inside oh, his mouth, which God. he then had to have for the because yeah. they had loads of them. Because every time he got to a stage where he didn't need it anymore, and they pulled the shield, just spat the thing out because he, he just hated it, you know. So um, <laughs> all of that taken into consideration, it's a remarkable sequence. It really is. It's absolutely spectacular. It really is. Right, well, just to, to, to bring it back to 60 Years of Bond, why do you think James Bond films have endured for so long? What do you think is the secret formula, John? Um, I'm inclined to agree um, with, uh, with Desmond Llewellyn, I think, because he always used to say that... that Fleming used to write that if you if you have the right locations, the right girls, the right excitement, you've got the right formula. And that, I think that's true. Moonraker is a good example of that, particularly through the Roger pictures, because they have a moment where you're introduced to the character. Um, you know by the end of the pre-title sequence that he's the guy. Like, there's no question that it's anybody else. He's the guy that you've come to see. Um, and I think that that was very interesting as some of the reviews that I'd heard on, on, on podcasts about Spy Who Loved Me. There were guys who were bringing their children to see Spy Who Loved Me because they'd never seen it before. And um, there may have been some confusion early on as to, well, who's this James Bond character? And by the end of the pre-title sequence, you go, oh, it's him. Ah, okay, right. They know, you know. So at the end of a pre-title sequence, at the start of a movie, you need to know who that character is. There needs to be the fact that he's the suavest, he's the most sophisticated, you know, he's the most charming individual that there is. And he can overcome the baddies not only physically, but do it verbally. And he can also charm the ladies you know, like, like the birds in the trees. It's not a problem to him. And I think that needs to come across. And he needs to do it in really exciting, fabulous locations, which, of course, it's the travelogue, as the later movies then became. Um, Moonraker is another good example of you know having Drax have this particular chateau brought brick by brick from France, and then they actually film the sequence in France, and then pretend that it's in Los Angeles. Very confusing, but you know they do this thing and they travel all over the world because that's what you do in a Bond movie. And I think that, and certainly you wouldn't have other movies because of if if it wasn't for Bond. Not in a million years. Would there have been the success of, of those the Mission Impossible movies, the I Spy television series, and stuff of this nature that was happening around that time when when Bond kicked off in '62, um, and it wouldn't have they wouldn't have had the longevity that they had. And this character has been in a situation where you're able to change the actor and you're able to continue, and you know within the first few moments of that uh, of each movie, you're going, okay, I'm accepting of this just take me on a big roller coaster ride and that's the success of the whole thing and uh uh long may it live i see that's fantastic john where can people find you um i know you're behind the stunts uh on, on twitter and instagram and youtube yeah, behind the stunts on the um uh on the social medias at stunt central on twitter and um, YouTube channel, of course, behind the stunts, uh, you will find a weekly show on there. There's, there's a podcast as well, which again, if you're uh, wherever you find your podcasts, if you type behind the stunts, you'll find me on there in some shape or form. Um, and of course, there's the, the book coming out in October. So there's all sorts of bits and pieces that can be uh, found and, and, and uh, 
any other stuff that I've done there, but it's, I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm not on the witness protection program just yet, so uh, it's, uh, it's easy to find me anywhere. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the podcast, Steve O'Brien, entertainment journalist. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good, Steve. Um, I'm glad to have you on to have your thoughts on uh, James Bond and on its 60th anniversary. Let's go dive straight in. What What have you chosen as your greatest Bond movie moments from the last 60 years? Well, I originally wanted to go with the uh, sort of air fight from uh, Moonraker, which is a, a quite an unfairly maligned uh, Bond film uh, I find uh, it was the first one I ever saw in the cinema, so I'm, I've always had a, a sort of soft spot for it. Uh, but instead, I've gone for the cable car uh, fight scene. Um, I feel it feels a bit weird, like choosing something that isn't wasn't dreamt up by one of the the big names who worked on Bond, like Roald Dahl or Richard Maybaum or, or even Fleming. Um, but it's actually kind of a scene written by the writer of the Confessions films, and. I still find that I just I still find that that's a really odd hiring for for Eon. Um, it's a, sort of a bit like if they suddenly asked the writer of Sex Lives of the Potato Men to write the next one. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems bizarre, but um, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant sequence. Apparently, I found out today that from 007.com, I didn't realize that it was originally intended for the final uh, the final reel of uh, Honor Majesties. Um, yes, yeah, I'd heard that before. And I just say, I think it's a brilliant sequence. If you look at the editing of it, there's there's this, you know, there's a mix of back projection studio stuff, on location shots and loads of different angles. And it just knits together really smoothly. And uh, yeah, I was listening to the uh, commentary today and uh, it was filmed in Sugarloaf Mountain in Brazil. And according to uh, producer William Cartledge, uh, they nearly got shut down. That's the owner of the cable cars. Uh, once he'd learned that what they were going to do which was uh, obviously kind of it crashes at the end. He thought that that would affect business, uh, but you know, obviously they, they got it sorted. Uh, and I, the stunt work is amazing on it. Absolutely. You know, so they had two stuntmen, one for Roger, obviously, and another for Keel. But obviously kind of stuntmen of Richard Keel's size 
are few and far between. So what they did was just get a kind of normal sized guy and then a particularly short guy, which was a, which coincidentally was uh, Roger's kind of regular stunt double, who I think was five eight. Uh, so that you had the in long shots, you got the height difference, and uh, and when you know that when when Bond and Jaws are fighting on top of the cable car. They, they they don't have wires attached because they're sort of weaving in and out of that sort of the metal above them, uh, which just makes it even more sort of jaw dropping. And uh, you know, I just think you know that's really kind of beyond the call of duty sort of uh, uh, stuff there from the stuntmen there. And uh, and when you think that the two, the thing was two thousand feet up in the air, and you know that the top of it where they were all kind of uh, where they were sort of fighting was about according to Martin Grace was about the size of a of a billiard table. Uh, that's just you know it's awe inspiring. He had his harness on underneath but he didn't have the cable ready because this particular shot was going to take place a little later in the day. And Lewis Gilbert is over on the land and he shouted across um, is the stuntman ready to uh, fall over the side? And of course Richard didn't have his cable on but he was so brave and he didn't want to sort of embarrass everybody by saying, well, I'm not ready. So he actually did the shot without the safety cable on. So when I was falling down over the edge, I hung on to the top of the roof with my hands to act as a brake. I still nevertheless went over the edge. I was so worried about this and suddenly he fell and was hanging by his hands over this but thousand foot drop and that was a very nasty moment because there was nothing else you could do but go for it and hope it worked and you know technically I, th I think it really holds up there's a lot of back, back projection obviously but apparently they were using this new um high def projection system which is what you know is why it looks significantly better than the sort of back projection from the sort of connery era um but it's the real stunts that really sell it and 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 actually, Richard Grayson, who was who was uh, more uh, stunt double, he was fifty five at the time, which makes it even more remarkable. And when he goes, there's a bit when he goes over the side, and uh, you know he wasn't wearing a harness, and he lost his grip, and you just think, you know, my God, how cavalier were they as regards health and safety uh, in those days? <laughs> you know, it's like it's. A, I think he sort of said it was it, it was the most terrified uh, he, he's ever been in his life. Um, so yeah, that's 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 my my choice. Uh, it's a sequence I can watch sort of out of context of the film, you know, just fire it up on YouTube occasionally. Uh, I I love the little moments, the little grace notes, the little uh, the look that uh, Bond gives um, Jaws as they sort of sort of uh, eye each other up, you know, just before they they fight. So There's a sort of little little nod of acknowledgement, a you know, <laughs> brilliant sort of Roger moment. Uh, yeah, I think it's got everything. This this sequence. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like like you say, someone we, we had um, someone else choose the uh, the pre-title sequence of Moonraker, and uh, you know, regardless of what you think of this movie, um, you know, by some it's considered to be one of the Bond films that jumps the shark, and uh, I, I think there is an argument for that because they do throw everything at it. But yes. you cannot dispute that this film has some incredible, incredible stunt sequences. Um, and you're right. I think the the credit belongs to the stunt performers, um, but also, like you say, the editor John Glenn, um, who would go on to, to to direct five of the films. He um, has an efficiency uh, in his editing, you know, probably passed down from Peter Hunt that um, cannot be denied um, in, in these sequence. You, you, you talked about the, the writer, so Christopher Wood is the writer. Is that who you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. So he was known for doing um, 
the soft, confessions films. Yeah, I mean, I think he kind of wrote a lot of these sort of softcore um, confessions novels and then wrote the three movies. And I think he also did a, a series, one of which, a, a series of, so a sort of rival series to those. Uh, and I think the first one was made into a the film Rosie Dixon Night Nurse, which again was a sort of soft core Brit comedy film that sort of starred a lot of kind of young nubile girls alongside sort of people like John Le and Arthur Askey. And I think kind of, they were very weird films. It's kind of weird who they were actually aimed at. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really bizarre choice, you know, given how, uh, how high that they'd aimed before that, you know, getting Roald Dahl in. You know, and 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 Mankovic, uh, and then they go with this sort of soft core, you know, sex writer. <laughs> I mean, that is it is. I mean, it does uh, tell you a lot about the tone that the that you ended up getting in the seventies with some of the Bond films. Yeah, I love, um, I love it. I, you know, I, yeah. Uh, uh, well, you know, I, obviously, the script for Spy Love Me is significantly a bit better than Moonraker. You know, look, you know, I have a soft spot for Moonraker, but I'm not going to say it's better than. Uh, Spy Love Me, even though they kind of feel like a bit like a, an A side and a B side to me, they definitely feel as though there's the same DNA uh, as part of them. Yeah, I love that description actually. The A side, B side, I think that is is very fitting. Um, and I, just just recalling as well, I think they they looked at Anthony Burgess to write the Spy Who Loved Me. So you've gone from one extreme to the other. Oh, I didn't know um, that. That's, yeah. that's crazy. Across the across those two movies, but um, I think they they do make a good double bill. Spy Love Me and Moonraker. Just thinking back to the moment, there's the, I love the moment where where Jaws leaps from one cable car to the other. Um, yeah, and, that... and it, just just visually together fighting, uh, it it makes it such a, a memorable image because he's so hulking and you know, just Bond just looks so weedy next to him. Uh, yeah, just just visually, it's it's a brilliant contrast. It really is, and it helps that you like you were saying it's all shot on location there as well in um, in Rio, and that's just sort of the. In fact, I I love the whole setting of of Moonraker. It's got some really evocative places that they visit, but but Rio in particular, I don't. I'm just trying to think. Have they done South? I mean, they've done Cuba millions of times, yeah. but um, South American countries they haven't done that many others, have they? I guess. Quantum of Solace spends a lot of time in South America. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of one of the reasons why I kind of love the more. I think the more era was more travelogy than than perhaps uh, than you know you know Connery was, but uh, you know maybe after that, uh, you know they're 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 the archetypal bank holiday films for me. You know that that the idea that we have of Bond being bank holiday experience. I think Spy Love Me and Moonraker really exemplify that. Um, they feel absolutely at home on a bank holiday Monday at two thirty in the afternoon, in a way that kind of no movie after after Living Daylights really fits into that that, that bank holiday tradition. Yeah, I think I, I would. I, well, I guess Living Daylights you, you'd sort of say is the sort of the last of the classic type of uh, Bond adventures, isn't it? And yeah, when, and it's, when it's too nasty for an afternoon, you know, because it was the first uh, fifteen, wasn't it? So yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but you're saying that these sort of bank holiday movies, I always sort of think of them, putting them in the same sort of category as like, you know, the original Superman movies. Um, Absolutely. Which... And, you know, I, I don't know if if the, the phrase sort of that bank holiday movie would mean anything to anybody under the age of 30. I think you've uh, <laughs> grown up in a in a non-streaming age, uh, you know, to know how how, uh, how important like films like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Superman the movie or, 
whatever were you know for, for a bank holiday or the great escape even yeah that's that's kind of where they belonged and even when i watch them now on dvd on any day i'm transported back to a bank holiday in the 80s or 90s yeah i mean that's uh i guess that's a huge part of the of bond's appeal isn't it as well there's um there is as everyone always says, you know, it's the first ones that you see that really stick in your mind and and become very nostalgic for people. And um, I think that's plays a huge part in in the enduring appeal of Bond. But Steve, what what do you think? We're asking everyone this question, but what do you think is the secret to the the, the longevity of the of the series, which now is in its sixtieth year? Uh, I think its ability to adapt, but only slightly. I think it's always a, a, a fantasy. And I think the kind of the more that they try to bring it back down to earth, I think they're kind of losing sight of what people initially like about it. I mean, th- there's always been this thing in Bond where they they sort of bring it back down to earth, and then they kind of revert re- revert to the to, to, to sort of default modes uh, within a couple of movies. So you get, uh, you know, they goes back down to earth with Few Eyes Only, and then you know within a you got back to the silliness of Moonraker within a, another two movies. Then they do it again with like with Live License to Kill, and then you know, and then. And uh, and Goldeneye, and then you've got Cup Diana the day at the end of that, and then they do it again in, in in Casino, and 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 they're embracing a lot more of the the standard Bond tropes by by Spectre and uh, and No Time to Die. So I, I don't know whatever they they do next time, you know, if they do decide to kind of strip it down again, it won't. You know, I don't think it'll ever be forever, and, and they'll revert back to those, you know, to what Bond's always been, which is grand escapism you know whenever they try to chase the the, the born thing that they i think they, they soon realize that uh what people want is something very different yeah they do i mean they i don't envy them i think they do face a bit of an impossible task reinventing it uh so many times um yeah I, I can only hope that um you know, i think the mission impossible films are, are sort of doing bond better now than i, I think that perhaps that they they actually are. So I, I think all you have to do is kind of look at them and realize that in Ethan Hunt you've got a very uncomplicated hero that doesn't need psychoanalyzing. We don't need to delve into his his backstory, um, and that works. And they're 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 really big films. So I, you know I think the next iteration of Bond, I don't think we necessarily need to uh, go too deeply into, into backstory. I think you know just having a, an, an escapist hero uh, is kind of enough. Yeah. Um, another guest, I'm just trying to remember who it was. They said um, they were of the opposite opinion. That they they felt like they they want Bond to be serious and they want him to be tough and gritty and uh, and and the Ian Fleming angle. So I like just even those two um, opposing views. Just I think highlights how complicated and how difficult it is to keep reinventing Bond and keeping everyone happy. Yeah, it's like um, when you ask people their, their favourite Bond film, there's always going to be uh, some who say uh, From Russia With Love is is the sort of template for them. And it never was for me. You know, for me, it's it's Goldfinger, it's the travelogue, it's the lightness of touch, it's the humour. And um, although I think From Russia With Love is the most Fleming-like, I didn't fall in love with the books. I fell in love with the movies. So... Whenever they say about taking it back to Fleming, I just think, well, only a tiny part of your audience are, are Fleming nuts. Uh, you know, we fell in love with the movie Bond, and that's and that's a different beast. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, well, thank you, Steve, uh, for lending your thoughts, and uh, here's to another another sixty years of Bond, maybe. Yeah. 
Hello, my name is Mark Eplitz, and I am the author of two books on Bond. The first is The Lost Adventures of James Bond, and the other is The Many Lives of James Bond. In honor of 007's 60th cinematic anniversary, I'm going to reveal my top 60 Bond moments. Here they are, number 60. No, just kidding. I'm just going to talk about one. One of my favorite moments above all others is Dalton's introduction in The Living Daylights, where he turns to camera and the camera sort of moves in on him. And it's a different style of filmmaking than John Glenn normally uses, which where it's not the zoom, the camera scene itself seems to move in. And without Dalton saying, my name is Bond, James Bond, you immediately know who he is and you immediately know that this actor is going to carry on in the footsteps of the previous Bonds and he's going to knock it out of the park and do a great job. The re one of the reasons that Bond has sustained all these 60 years, or at least the cinematic one, is what James Chapman calls continuity and change, which is to say continuity with the past and change going forward. So continuity with the past could mean continuing characters, continuing actors, continuing phrases, or even seeing Bond in, in, a, in a casino wearing a tuxedo. But it also means change, change to at least reflect different styles of filmmaking and different genres or subgenres, and even change in the kind of storytelling. For example, in with Daniel Craig, we see serialized storytelling that we had in, in the previous Bond films, which were all one-off adventures. And the other reason or A, the other reason that Bond continues is because he continues to be what Fleming described as a silhouette, which is to say he is not all-knowable. We know enough about him to be intrigued, but there's also enough held back that we could project our own ideas of who this character is onto him. And uh, so... That's just a couple of the reasons why we've had the cinematic bond for 60 years and uh, we'll likely have them for, or hopefully have them for 60 more. So, happy anniversary, Dublin 7. It's all so boring here, Margot. There's nothing but playboys and tennis pros. If only I could find a real man. I need to use your phone. Should call you back. Who are you? Bond, James Bond. Exercise control 007 here. I'll report in an hour. Won't you join me? Better make that too. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, Mr. Neil Alcock, uh, writer, film writer, journalist, blogger. Um, welcome. Hello. An all round Bond brain. <laughs> um yeah that's one way of putting it i don't know whether that's a compliment or not but i suppose it is around these parts well i remember following your exploits neil back in uh the 50th anniversary you did the, the blog along bond um yeah on my on my website yeah we did that it was a uh, kind of a way to get a load of bloggers involved in in just uh revisiting the series and and seeing what they thought about it in the run-up to skyfall yeah it was a really fun project yeah, I remember. Yeah, it, just devouring all those sort of different perspectives on the on the films, and uh, that all that stuff still lives online, and people can read that still. Yeah. Um, but for the 60th anniversary, um, we are asking uh, fans like yourself 
to talk about their favourite Bond movie moments. So what have you chosen, Neil? Well, it wasn't an easy choice, I'll be honest, um, as I'm sure everybody uh, will also say. There's loads of stuff that I love about Bond, and there are, there are tiny, tiny split-second moments that I love, and there are great big overarching things that I love. But um, I have chosen to go for Bond's scenes with Saunders in The Living Daylights, uh, and very specifically the first scene, which is the Koskov defection scene in Bratislava. Ah, fantastic. So T- Thomas Wheatley playing uh, Saunders in that film. And this is a film that um, uh, only grows in stature for me every time I watch it. So w- what is it about uh, that introduction to uh, to to, um, to Saunders? Uh, well, uh, Timothy Dalton is my favourite Bond. Uh, that's how you recognise a Bond fan with excellent taste. Um, <laughs> so I just was watching it recently and thinking that this... That first scene, the defection scene, is uh, it totally defines everything that Dalton's Bond is about. Everything that he kind of wants to do with the role is in that scene. And it's very Fleming. It's it's totally lifted. So that whole five, six minute scene is basically like a, a lovely condensed version of the Living Daylight short story that Ian Fleming wrote. Um, there's a few bits missed out and there's a few bits added in. But you know, that short story is there in those five minutes. And it's a great mini adventure. Um, and Saunders' character particularly is like a, a really great foil for Bond. And it really allows you to see the writing there really allows you to kind of see where, where Dalton's going to go with this. Yes, it, it really is a great introduction, not just to to Dalton as Bond, but as a, a reintroduction to to Bond for a, a new era. Because obviously this, this film comes on a cusp of... Uh, yeah, ha, ha, the, the the Bond films as we know it changing forever, really. Um, but I think that's um, I think that is a really interesting dynamic that uh, that sort of grounds Living Daylight uh, in a way that perhaps we haven't seen. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back, you know, I mean, we see Bond with with Q in the field a few mm-hmm. times. Um, thinking about Octopussy, um, but the difference between Octopussy and Living Daylights is. Uh, <laughs> It's almost night and day, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing about it is that Saunders is basically a civil servant, as is Bond to some extent. But, you know, Saunders spends all his time behind a desk uh, and this this defection gig has come his way. He calls it my baby. Um, and so he's kind of arranged everything and organized everything. But the one thing he can't do is kill a sniper. So there's only one person in the service good enough who has the nerve to do this job. So they have to get Bond in. And this is a really great way to kind of bring Bond into the story, I think. He's basically the guy that they call when th- when nobody else wants to do the job. So he has to do the dirty work. He has to rock up, shoot the sniper, uh, and then basically everybody just wants to get rid of him. And you can see it in that in the first scene where they meet in the, um, in the concert hall where they see Kara playing the cello for the first time. They just immediately hate each other. They don't get on with each other. Uh, Saunders doesn't really want anything to do with Bond, but he knows that he needs him to do this job, and that carries through into the into the stuff in the in the flat where the uh, where Bond is going to shoot the sniper from. Um, and I just think it's it, it shows that Bond is he doesn't enjoy being this kind of cold blooded murderer, but he knows he's good at it. He knows that he's the one they call when they want this dirty work doing, but also he doesn't suffer fools. He's very professional. I mean, who doesn't love the moment where he pops his collar and pulls that little Velcro tab over to kind of 
black out his, the white of his shirt. That's just amazing. Um, and and Saunders just doesn't really like him, not because he he kind of perceives him as as being a bit cavalier, like he accuses him of kind of being more interested in the ladies than than. Um, the job that he's doing but also he just doesn't like him because he's he's a killer and nobody in their right mind would want to work with or be friends with a killer and you can see why bond doesn't have many friends because that's just the kind of person he is and and no and he doesn't enjoy getting close to people and nobody really wants to get close to him and i find all that fascinating and that all comes from fleming if you read um the living daylight's short story everything that Fleming describes in Bond's head is kind of there in Timothy Dalton's face, in his eyes, every kind of resigned sigh that he's got to do this stuff. And just, a, you know, it's a weight on him. You can see it. And I just love that. I love that that is how Dalton is going to do Bond. And he talked a lot about that, didn't he, before he took the role uh, in in the run-up, how he really wanted to bring it back to Fleming. Um and you're right; it does it does all come all, all come across. But I, I love that you mentioned the the coat and the way that he flips up the collar and and pulls the thing over. It's such a delicious, mm. um, sort of understated moment where you know that, you know, this has been agonised over by a Q department somewhere, um, <laughs> and it's just deployed so uh, nonchalantly by Bond, who, like you say, he's just going about doing his job, isn't he? He's yeah. got this uh, this yeah. trigger to pull. Yeah. Um, but also he's got that amazing sniper rifle as well. Oh my um, god, this is gigantic. <laughs> which you've never seen anything like yeah. it before. Um, I, was, I think it's on the commentary John Glenn says that it was like a the latest sniper rifle and I'm like how how do you know that? Did you that's you know that some it's somebody's job to find out what the latest sniper rifle is and that's a concern. But then he says they then they took it to the props department and they added even more stuff onto it just to make it look ridiculous. But it also right? carries it yeah. off. Um, yeah. John Glenn says, you know, Timothy Dalton was really good with props and you can, you know, he holds this stuff like he, he knows what he's doing. Absolutely. Yeah. You just can't see Roger Moore doing that. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot about the living daylights, which obviously we know was carried over from the Roger Moore era. And part of it is a bit Roger Moorey, but that, that scene in the flat, you just can't imagine Roger Moore doing it. When Dalton then goes off to the um, pipeline factory or whatever the hell it is. And, and Rosie <laughs> is there with her gigantic, um, decolletage that, that all that is total roger moore that stuff and and um i don't know dalton carries it off well but you can see that he he's much more comfortable doing the the previous stuff yeah um there is a i i know that the story is that you know this film was not written with necessarily with um with the with the uh, actor in place for it mm. so you can sort of sense that throughout living daylights there is a push and pull with the with the tone um but I mean, just to bring it back to Saunders, then something I love about Living Daylights is how their story evolves, Bond yeah. and Saunders. So they have like three pretty short scenes together. I don't think Saunders is in the film for, for uh, 10 minutes at most. Um, but yeah, over, there's like a perfect arc of a relationship throughout those three scenes. And in the second scene, which is where they uh, they meet again in a different concert hall in Vienna, uh, where Bond... Um, tells him to go and find out some information on the Stradivarius. It's a really lovely little switch because in the first scene, Saunders is in charge, it's his operation, and he's telling Bond what to do. And then in the second scene, the roles are reversed and Bond is now very clearly in charge. Uh, and he tells Saunders to go off and, and find out how Koskoff could afford to buy this Stradivarius. And he tells him the name of the, he says it's called the Mary Rose. And <laughs> Saunders is like, a cello with a name um 
and Bond puts him totally in his place and just you can see it in sort in you know Thomas Wheatley's performance is great because he plays it like a an officious kind of idiot but at the same time it's quite likable and throughout that scene he realizes that Bond knows what he's doing and that he might be able to help him rescue this botched operation and so there's a bit of kind of you get a kind of goes okay it gives him a little smile and he says I've got nothing to lose but my pension turns out that was not quite correct well, very much so, yeah. And that, the way that Bond knows what the the the, the cello's called, it, again, it calls back to this idea of Fleming's idea of Bond being a very cultured man. Um, of course, Bond would know that sort of stuff, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean that that final scene where it all comes together then oh, um, at the so um, at, at the fairground. Um, that's where. Yeah, I guess Bond and, and Saunders then converge into a sort of a, a mutual ad- admiration, isn't it? Yeah, and that's you know, it, like I say, it's an arc with almost three acts, and the last arc, the last act is uh, he comes through, even though he says, you know, there's no way I can get that information that quickly or, or get clearance for whatever, and then he comes through with this stuff, and there's a real kind of kinship there. They realise that that actually they know each other's places in their relationship and in the business, and um, Bond says thank you and they shake hands and you get the sense that kind of everything's okay and here are two guys who could go on to work together and have lots more adventures maybe but sadly yeah sadly not (laughs) it turns out to be not the case not the case yeah we've got um yeah we've got the henchman comes in and tinkers with the door which um is it's quite a terrifying idea really Mm. and, and well executed uh, excuse the pun um <laughs> in the movie um how scared were you about going through sliding glass doors after <laughs> first seeing that i know i was very very much so yeah and i do wonder whether the glass doors have that capacity to to be able to do that <laughs> yeah it's not entirely clear i don't think what's going on because either he's tinkered somehow with the speed of the door with his little walkman or he's put some kind of explosive device in there that blasts it closed i don't know it's not it obviously it doesn't really matter but um yeah i I think the the scene is so well done as well because you you see saunders go through and you see him kind of lunge through as the doors close but you don't actually see anything super horrific you just get that shattering of the door and this kind of screams of everybody in the in the cafe and then you get dalton's kind of shocked alarmed look that something has horribly gone wrong and he goes over to Saunders' body and he kind of looks really resigned and n- not just sad, but kind of, oh, God, you know, this is what happens to people in our business. Another another one bites the dust. This is, you know, this is such a shit business. And then the balloon kind of floats over and he squeezes it in. He's so angry. And I love it. I love the look on Dalton's face at that point because he just looks absolutely furious. And he's so cross that he pops a balloon with his bare hands and then kind of goes off after the killer because he thinks that the, there's some balloons on the other side of the hedge and he goes and jumps over the hedge and he pulls a gun on a little kid. And that's like, you know, he's so he's so kind of beside himself with rage that he does something really, really stupid. Uh, and I think that's all part of humanising Bond that, that nobody else really got until Daniel Craig. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think you've picked an absolutely uh, uh, blinding moment to choose from after uh, with 60 years of, of moments to choose from. You've, you've chosen a, a great one. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad to have uh, some more Dalton love uh, within these uh, within these specials. We've had a lot of talk about Connery and uh, and also uh, other eras. But yeah, to get some more Dalton in here is 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 terrific. Um, Always happy to spread the Dalton love. Where <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> 
Um, what do you think, if I had to put you on the spot, Neil, what do you think is the secret to the enduring appeal of, of the James Bond films? Why have they lasted for 60 years? Um, I guess it's just reinvention, isn't it? Uh, it it's, all, it's all based in a character that Fleming created who uh, is not really a hero. He's not really very likable. And so there has been this kind of attempt over 60 years to make a heroic and likable character out of an unlikable um, blunt instrument. And so there's there's that kind of dichotomies going on all the time. And I think that's really interesting. And that's why you get so much um, so much change throughout the series and reinvention, because those two sides are always kind of at war with each other. And I don't think they'll ever quite get it right. For me, it should be quite far on the other side of likable. You know, it should be it should be quite unpleasant. And I don't think that these you know i'm i'm quite a boring bond fan and i think these shouldn't really be kids films and the roger moore as much as i love roger moore those aren't um that's not the way i see my bond but you know the reason that the reason it's gone on so long and the secret of its endurance is they appeals to different ones different appeals to different people and the reinvention keeps it fresh uh and also it's just amazing that's a a great a great answer and i know when we talked about you coming on you mentioned sort of uh also, how you enjoyed that the series wasn't afraid to take big swings when it when it needed to, um, mm. and you're right. And I think that that is all part of the reinvention is that you can't just keep reheating the same thing and serving it up and hoping yeah. people will come back. You've got to take those risks, um, yeah. which which they do. And obviously, they have t- t- taken a massive risk, probably the biggest risk of all, <laughs> with the with the most recent film. Yeah. No, that's the thing I love about Bond the most is when is when risks are taken. Um, I guess Honor Majesty's Secret Service was probably the first big risk, and I, I absolutely love that film. Um, License to Kill was a huge risk, uh, and then the way that Daniel Craig approached it, full stop, was was you know nobody was quite ready for that, and certainly nobody was really ready for the end of No Time to Die. And I just my heart exploded with excitement when i realized that bond was going to die which is a kind of crazy thing to <laughs> to think but i thought oh god they're actually going to do it they're going to do something really risky and really amazing and absolutely applaud that i know it's not the most popular thing that's ever happened in a bond film but i loved it well listen i'm 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 completely on your side with that and i but you are right i don't think it's it works for everyone but for for me i thought um I mean, I was in shock when it happened, mm. but because I didn't think they would do it. And I think that's also the genius of it is that they did. They went yeah. and did it. Um, yeah. I can't wait it, to see how they're going to get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be nanotechnology, uh, yeah. smart blood, something. Or, um, well, it'll just be another whole new reinvention. And I actually can't wait to find out uh, yeah. what that looks like. I don't, I'm glad I'm not the person that's been tasked with doing it, though. No, me too. And I'm excited. I'm excited about not knowing because... I just I just can't imagine what's going to happen and I'm excited to find out. Hi Brendan, hi Tom. Um my favorite underappreciated sequence in a Bond film would have to go to my favorite Bond film of all time which is License to Kill and that is Bond's escape from the Wavecrest uh, facility. Uh the underwater sequences are brief and exciting which remedies the or pretty much remedies everything from Thunderball, if you ask me. And I also like it how Bond shoots a harpoon gun on the back of a seaplane and water skis it 
you know, he comes out of the water and he water skis behind the plane, in which creates a very exciting, che- brief, exciting chase. And also, you know, coupled that with Michael Kamen's score, it creates an absolutely exhilarating moment in the series, if you ask me. I also like the top off where Bond takes the wad of money, smiles at it and throws it into the back of the plane. I think that's a very nice send off. Hello and welcome back to the James Bond A to Z podcast, Mr. Mark Harrison. How are you? Hi, Tom. It's good to be back. I'm good. Um, so we're asking people to name their favourite mo- moment from the Bond films over the last 60 years. What have you gone for? Um, well, it's not that one. It's not the end of The Spy Who Loved Me, but I do like I do like a lot of bits from The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, it's a bit from another favourite of mine, um, which is Licence to Kill. It's specifically the bit that I think is just oh, an underrated... It's an underrated moment, I would say, in, in in not so much in just in Timothy Dalton's Bond films because you know there's just the two of them. But I would say in, in the whole lot, I think it's an underrated moment. It's the bit when um, he boards the wave crest and then escapes from the wave crest and ruins Sanchez's drug shipment. Um, not only soaking a load of cocaine, but also making off with five million dollars. Um, stop me if I get a little arm partridge. So, like the, the the lead up to this is all of the you know revenge, all of the revenge thriller type stuff. And I think like one of the reasons I love this film so much is it's one of the Bond films, one of the rare Bond films I think before Daniel Craig ways showing a real range of emotion. And that's not just rage and grief and anger and more rage and <laughs> and all of that good stuff. Um, I think that what com- I think that this action set piece is so perfectly designed around the bit that I love about it so much, which is that when it gets to the end of it, uh, Dalton is laughing. <laughs> so when we find Dalton in the cockpit yes. after he's after he's done all that, after he's gone through all of that stuff, like he's it, it's it's all you know the, the set piece itself is very in keeping with the dark tone of the film. He's gone from being in Lupe's cabin and he sees them bring in Sharky dead. And he's dark as out, as always, textbook Dalton, when he's sneering at Lupe that she seems fine with Sanchez's way when it's Sanchez. Um, then has to escape. When he's snorkeling under the water, he, you know, rips the cocaine open, crests sees him on camera, kicks off, sets some snorkel bastards on him. He fights them off in the only good snorkeling fight of the series, for my money. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you, you've got... You've got, you've got like, I think it's one of John Glenn's best action sequences as well. It's an idea that exists in like the very first treatment for the film that Richard Merbaum and uh, Michael G. Wilson came up with, is that he water skis barefoot uh, behind a seaplane as it takes off from the money. He's got used a harpoon gun as a tour, and he's got no skis, and uh, everyone's shooting at him. Again, I'm getting a little on Partridge describing this. I'm going to keep it brief. Um, <laughs> Michael Kamen sticks a little bit of the Bond theme in, in this particular bit because it's such a Bond moment, the whole water skiing barefoot thing. Gets up there, fights the pilots. I, I think that um, the, like the newer Mission Impossible films nick a lot from these '80s James Bond films. By the way, this like and you know one hundred percent. Yeah, the pilot looking out of the window and seeing that there's someone hanging on when he's been flying for a little while is replicating Fallout to amazing effect as well. Um, but you know, 
fights off the pilot, takes, takes control of the plane, and flies back, flies back past the wave crest just to drop one of the pilot's bodies in front of crest and fly off again. And that's the Bond theme comes back in the score again there. But it's not like the big brass, it's not like a big bombastic moment. It's a little bit like the bit that Thomas Newman does later on in, in Skyfall, like the guitar bass line coming in, you know, when they catch um, when they catch silver, when all the helicopters turn mm. over. So it's, it's just like a cool as you like, you know, drop of that theme. And although, like, all of this action set piece is steeped in, like, the jeopardy that comes with, like, these two, the Timothy Dalton films where Bond's world feels dangerous, it's, like, a really elegant and entertaining solution to a problem of where Bond is in the story at this point. Like, he's he's already got his plan to sort out about Crest's loyalty for what follows because he's going to go in there and mess up Sanchez. And now that he's not dining out on the British taxpayer, he's also got millions of Sanchez's own money to wage war against him. At the culmination of which, which is putting the money back on the wave crests and getting to that nice, gory 15 certificate worthy moment. But as I say, at the end of all this, you, we find Dalton in the cockpit with fistfuls of dollars. It's another your Jimbo connection there. And he's laughing his ass off. It's just a rare moment like from someone who's considered serious. It's not the only moment in which he laughs. You see him in Love and Daylights being quite good boyfriend material and having a nice time on a roller coaster. But it's a rare <laughs> moment. It's a rare moment for Bond. Altogether, there's only I can't think of too many more times where he's laughing and enjoying himself. There's maybe yeah. there's a little bit in the back seat and tomorrow never dies, and there's sort of performative bit when he's on the wrong end of a bit of rope in Casino Royale. But you know, it's it's um like at the time of recording, that clip's going around again of Dalton absolutely hitting the nail on the head about Bond as a character is that there's disdain for his job, is that he's in some ways as bad as the people that he's fighting. It's just that he happens to be on government who declared the good guys. And I think that holds up, and I think that's absolutely key to a lot of his performance. But it's wild that he also, in that moment, in this one moment of perfect shithousery, just enjoys his job. Did I drop Yeah, that? I mean... Sorry. No, it's it, it's fine. Um, yeah, I think it's a fantastic moment that you've chosen, and um, I think I, I'm in agreement with you that it's probably... I, I think the John Glenn area is a difficult one for me to, to get a grip on, but, um, mm. you know, he steered that Bond ship through a difficult era through the 80s, I think. You know, I think the series was struggling a little bit with it, with its identity. And, and I really feel like Licence to Kill is a culmination of, of um, everything that he's tried so far coming together. Um, I think it's his, I think it's by far his strongest James Bond movie. Mm, um, definitely. And it's I prefer it much prefer it to Living Daylights as well, uh, and for Dalton as well. And what I love about this film as well um, is sort of how it ties into. It's very different to the to the Bond films that we've had before, but it's also ties into the heritage and the legacy. You know, with Felix Leiter, um, and uh, and it being driven by the the death of Leiter's wife. Which we, mm. as we know, and we are reminded at the start of this film, happened in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which was what twenty years ago at this point in the Bond franchise. Um, and yeah, I think the sequence that you've chosen is just absolutely one of those moments that really sings in that movie. Um, and you mentioned the guy on the on the water skis, um, yeah. and it was I think it was an idea that they had, but then they had just had to find someone who could actually do it. And they could only find like a handful of people that could actually do it for real. Um, yeah. It's such a harebrained scheme. Yeah. Didn't they have to put the guy on like transparent skis as well, but even to, you had to cheat a little bit. Yeah. A little <laughs> so, bit. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and you mentioned, um, Miss, go on. 
I was just going to say I've read the treatment, like the original treatment before uh, before recording, and like this when it gets to that bit, it's like see Appendix B, and there's some storyboards they've undrawn of like we've well we've written he's going to barefoot ski behind a plane, and here's a drawing of it. Now you have to go figure out. It. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> classic John Glenn. Can you go figure that out, lads? Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a terrific sequence, all really put together, and I think again one of those moments where like the opening of Fewer Eyes Only, where you can see. John Glenn's experience as an editor um, coming into play um, in that he shoots so economically, uh, everything's put together with precision um, and like you say, combined with the the use of the James Bond theme. um, It's just one of those, uh, one of those standout moments. Um, I think it's a great sequence. And in in that movie, you know, you've got a few really, really good action stump set pieces um, that you could have chosen. I personally love the, um, the truck chase at the end as well um, for its sheer bravado. Um, And you mentioned Mission Impossible. um, And the the one that always reminds me is where, you know, they they knocked Sanchez off the water into the sea and they lift that directly. Is it Fallout, that one they use in Mission Impossible? No, it's Mission Impossible 3. Has that? Oh, but they do. They also do it in Fallout as well. Yeah, it's Mission Impossible Three, the JJ Abrams one that has almost. It almost looks like the same bridge, like in the way that it sets right. up. It looks like a full direct lift from License to Kill, but it does that thing of him being recovered. But yeah, you're right. They yeah. do it in. Um, they do it in Fallout as well. But this the the thing the Nick in that, that I always remember is the um, the bit where it's in the water and it's the sort of Dunkirk shot of like the water rising, but it's on the wrong yeah. angle, so it looks like it's yeah, going yeah. sideways. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's it. They've, they've nicked that a couple of times then, Mission Impossible. <laughs> well, and I, th- I think a lot of the aerial stuff as well you see has been recycled in Mission Impossible. You know, people sort hmm. of talk about these stunts and I think you can, you can pin a lot on uh, the excitement for them because Tom Cruise did it for real. But these stunt yeah. people in James Bond were doing it for real as well. It's just that they're not, um, you know, not Tom Cruise, not the movie stars. So uh, they deserve <laughs> yeah. as much credit as as he does. Uh, but yeah. I think it's a terrific, terrific moment you've chosen there, Mark. You could have chosen anything from 60 Years. And uh, I think you've <laughs> picked a, a real humdinger, uh, a Bobby Dazzler, as my nan would say. Um, <laughs> so, so, Mark, what do you think is the secret to the, the longevity of Bond? How, how has it survived for 60 years? Um... <laughs> Big question. Yeah, it is a big question. I think, um, I mean, you mentioned that in the 80s it has something of an identity crisis. There is that. I think that somewhere in the middle of that decade it becomes the most the most Bond formula, I would say, that you can get out say that by the time Review to a Kill, it's it's the Bond formula, irrespective of the fact that Roger Moore is, is 57 years old and that there are a lot of um, submen around and the Bond is it's, it's, it's most unflappable, I would say, at this point in it. Like even with everything else going on around him, like even with the this more violence, I think in Roger Moore's last two Bond films than there is in you know certainly more violence in the John Glenn directed ones than there are in the earlier ones, and I think that that's coming right after Moonraker. That's an effort to bring it down, you know, down to earth again. And by the time Review to a Kill, you have this sort of like really tropey, you know, it's embracing James Bond at its most formulaic. And then the very next film that comes in, Timothy Dalton finally stops saying no to them. And says, all right, we have to take this back to, you know, to Fleming a little bit. And then that goes for a while. And again, it just comes back. I think it's the, I don't want to say boom and bust, but I think it's sort of like pushing the envelope and then knowing when to step back, I would say, is one of the things. Like, Dying of the Day, as everyone always observes, is was a massive hit at the box office. 
like you know the, the commentary on Dino the day famously ends with Pierce Brosnan saying I think it'll go on in this direction. Uh, he says something to the effect of like um, of like there's lots of you know cries for people. There's lots of demand for seeing his origins and taking it back to basics, back to Ian Fleming. I don't think it will go that way. And of course, the very next film comes out as Casino Royale, <laughs> and everyone enjoys it. It's usually acclaimed. Um, but it wasn't necessarily the next step you would take looking at the box office of of Dino the day. So having I said this on our No Times on the No Times Die episode, but um. I have no idea where they go next, but I think that instinct has, you know, when to pull back has kept it. I mean, it's not kept it from doing hover gondolas or invisible cars or kite surfing or any of that stuff. But uh, I think that's possibly it. <laughs> I think that sense of, but again, I, mean, that I sense think, of it, yeah, I think it, yeah, knowing yeah. that when 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 to hit the reset button, I think is uh, it, it is it is important. Um, and it has had that moment. It has had that moment a few times, hasn't it? I think you you, you can point at you only live twice as a moment where they realised they had to dial things back hmm. um, after that one, um, and they seem to have managed to 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 make the right decisions, and that's that's helped. The obviously, sadly, the one that you chose, License to Kill, is is one of the lowest grossing movies uh, in the series, um, but. It led to Goldeneye, one of the biggest hits of the series. So, um, and now we live in an era where many people consider *Licence to Kill* to be one of the best Bond films yet, including me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a great point. So, um, well, thanks for joining us again, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Lovely to speak to you. The James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy, with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. There's two million dollars in that suitcase. I'll split it with you. You want it. You keep it, old buddy. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.